Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Well, if ever there was a passage which cuts against the grain of our culture, this is it. Um, let me read to you again the verses to the wives and I want you to listen to see are there any alarm bells going off in your head. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Any alarms? Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Any ringing going in your head? Um, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Any air raid sirens? Any loud clanging? Okay. Um, when I read that last verse to my daughter this week, who's now married, she said, well, obviously a wife doesn't need to submit to her husband in the matter of home decoration, because that would just be silly. And then she went on to quote that line from a big fat Greek wedding, a man may be the head, but the woman is the neck who turns the head any way she wants. <laughs> now, Maybe it is that you had a more extreme reaction. You know, submit, that word in our culture, sounds such a dirty word, especially in the context of the Me Too movement. For that word to be in the Bible, to, um, to encourage wives um, about what they should do in marriage, that's pretty explosive. And that criticism wouldn't have teeth had not there been husbands who've used this verse to justify bullying and oppression and ordering their wives around, almost treating them like slaves or a doormat. And then today, of course, because of feminism and gender equality, the very suggestion that there might be differences in roles in marriage is controversial at best, if not offensive. Added to that, you've got the huge potential for misinterpretation. Because isn't the very idea of male headship a large contributing factor for domestic violence? And could it not justify um, a wife staying in an abusive relationship? Now, if this is your issue, I'd urge you to go and have a look online at uh, the Trinity Church Aldgate uh, website to the sermon that I did on the 12th of January on this passage, on this topic, Does Male Headship Cause Domestic Violence? Even if we get through all of that, there's confusion. I mean, does male headship and the wife's submission mean that the husband has to make all the decisions? Is it saying that the wife 
absolutely has to obey her husband at all times. Okay, so we have these criticisms which might make us want to stop our ears and shut the Bible. But actually, we need to listen to what it's really saying. So just for an exercise, I actually am going to ask you to shut the Bible because I do want to see whether you've been listening. Um, I want you to close your Bible, turn to the person beside you and try and tell them everything you can about the content of this passage, what it actually says. OK, you ready? One minute. Go. Okay, now listen to the other person, if you haven't yet. Well, how did you go? You'll have been able to remember some things, some things you may have actually got slightly wrong. But I reckon there'll also be a whole lot that you've just glossed over and you couldn't recall at all. That's the important stuff to remember and to look at as we go through, because that's the stuff that will help unlock the passage. That's what it's done for me. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, please help us as we come to this passage to attend to it, uh, to listen carefully so that we can understand the good things you're saying here. And if we have wrong understandings of this passage, we pray that you'd correct us. And we pray that all of us would listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before we dive in, I want to first um, clear... Sorry. Okay, before we dive in... It's helpful to know that many of our misunderstandings of this passage can be cleared away just by looking at the context. So here are four key insights from the context. We'll spend a bit of time on this. Number one, the context for the commands given here is the grace of God working itself out in our lives. So Ephesians divides into two halves, uh, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. Roughly, this is the theology of the gospel and then how it's applied. At the end of the first half, at the end of chapter 3, um, we see the goal of what God has done for us is uh, that we would be filled with the fullness of God to his glory. Now, that's meant to then work itself out. We are meant to show God's character. Well, what is God's character? If we read chapters 1 to 3 and I was up to ask you, what are words which describe God's character? You might say things like, well, God's gracious and he's kind, and he's loving, and he's generous. Those characteristics which we have received from God, we've received his grace and his kindness and his generosity and his love, that is now meant to transform us and to flow out into how we relate to others. So at the start of chapter 4, we are told to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing each other, in love, this is what God is like to us. We're meant to treat one another that way. Or in the end of chapter 4, in Christ, God has forgiven you, so follow God's example, beginning of chapter 5, as God's dearly loved children. and Walk in the way of love. Be like God to one another. 
Then at the start of our passage, okay, it begins in verse 18, not verse 21, but verse 18. The main command is to be filled with the Spirit, be filled with God. And that will come out, speaking to one another, singing, thanking God, and then submitting to one another. God's character is meant to come out. Okay. So the assumption is that the wives and husbands who are hearing this, they know the grace of God in their lives, they've received it, and they're being transformed by it, and it's coming out in the way in which they relate to others. So the context is the grace of God. Second insight, we are all called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it says in verse 21 explicitly. What it means is that no one is not called to submit to one another. Everyone has to submit to one another, including husbands, including parents next week, and including masters, chapter 6. How so? Because their behaviour towards, well, wives and children and slaves their behaviour is an act of submission to Christ himself so that every action that we display is meant to come out of our massive regard for Christ because of the grace we have received from him. This is what makes Christianity different to Islam. The word Islam means submit. Here we are told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, but the difference is that our submission is not based on fear or terror, but on our massive regard for Christ for his gracious generosity and his costly sacrifice of himself. Okay. Thirdly, submission will look different in different relationships because not all relationships are the same. So in verse 21, we're to be submitting to one another. Then it goes through the categories of relationships, wives to husbands, children to parents in chapter 6, slaves to masters, chapter 6, verse 5. And it also gives then a word for husbands and for parents and for masters. So in other words, there are different categories of relationships. And then within those relationships, there are different roles. And submitting to one another will look differently depending on the relationship and the role. Okay, that needs to be borne in mind when we ask what submission means for Christian wives. You know, does it specifically mean obedience? Well, the word obey, Paul uses when he describes what submission looks like in chapter 6 for children and for slaves. It's telling that nowhere in chapter 5 does Paul use that word obey in reference to what submission looks like for a wife in regards to her husband. Okay, Meaning that if we um, wanted to find submission for a Christian wife, to her husband in terms of obedience. It's a massive stretch and probably actually a wrong understanding. Okay, so submission will look different. Fourthly, irrespective of our marital status, whether we're single or married or whether we're happily married or single or not, okay, irrespective of that, this word from God to us on what Christian wives and husbands are to be like speaks to all of us. Why does it do so? Because Christian marriage points us to a greater reality which every believer is part of. And that is the relationship with Christ. Okay, this may explain why it's given so, so much space. Twelve verses, in fact, half 
a chapter in the book of Ephesians. I would have, as a pastor, loved Paul to say something about what the relationship between the congregation and pastor is to look like. But no, no, no. This is actually much more important. It speaks about that greater reality. Verse 32 spells it out where Paul, I'll paraphrase, says, you know, all this talk about wives and husbands and the unity they have under God, it's not actually about them. It's about something far greater, which every believer is part of, the relationship between Christ and his church. So that the way in which a Christian wife and husband are to relate is actually a living illustration for all of us of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And that's a relationship which involves each one of us, if we're a believer. Paul is plugging us into a much larger storyline of the Bible. So in verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2 right at the start about the first marriage, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then in verse Sorry, that's verse 31. Verse 32, he goes to the end of the Bible where he speaks about that great wedding supper between Christ and his church in Revelation. So suddenly we are told that the Bible's whole storyline can be understood in terms of marriage. Man and woman, Christ and his church. And in Ephesians 5, both of those come together. And he says the first one illustrates for us the second what that means is that what's described about Christian wives and husbands is relevant for every believer because every believer is part of the bride of Christ. Okay, so if you belong to Christ, that is your great identity, regardless or not of whether you're married. That's our identity, and that's what Christian marriage speaks to us about. Okay, now... Focusing specifically on Christian husbands and wives. First of all, a word for the wives. Now, I say this because that's explicit. Verses 22 to 24 are meant for wives, not for husbands. I say that because husbands have often looked at these verses and then gone, see, it says, wives, submit to your husbands, so wife, you have to submit to me. But that's a misinterpretation. Because if that was the application for husbands, to be able to say that, then we would expect at verse 25, when Paul speaks specifically to husbands, to say, husbands, make your wives submit. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that at all. Um, verse 22 to 24 is not written for husbands. It's written, written for wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Reason, not because your husband deserves it, not because he's a nice guy or it's easy but because it's part of your relationship with Christ. It comes out of that relationship. Submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Okay, now what does this mean, submit? Um, does it mean obey? I was caused to rethink this. I had to do once a kid's talk on this passage in a service and I got kids out the front and I played a game of following the leader. The premise is that the people following have to obey or imitate the person out the front. And we get played a game and then I interviewed the kids and I said, what was the hardest thing? Was it harder to lead or harder to follow? And we understood that both actually were difficult. The premise was submission defined in terms of obedience. When I got home, Sue Harrington rang me up and <clears throat> Sue doesn't normally ring me up. Uh, and very respectfully, I have to say, 
she challenged me on this. She said, I like your kids' talks, Chris, but this one I found difficult. What a respectful way to raise an issue. Um, and she said, the difficulty I have is that in the passage, it doesn't define submission in terms of obedience. And then she made me see, and it was very helpful, that in verse 33, submission, or a wife's submission to her husband, is defined not in terms of obedience, but in terms explicitly of respect. Now, respect doesn't always mean obey. So, for example, uh, I don't think I tell my wife to do many things, but suppose I did, um, and she didn't want to do it, but she wanted to respect me. Okay, how would that look? Well, she might say, Chris, uh, I hear what you're saying, but I want to understand why it is that makes it so important for me to do what you've said. Very respectful. She's trying to listen to me. And then she might say, well, you need to understand why it is that uh, I think differently on this. Can you please listen to what I have to say? Um, she's trying to respect me in the way in which she doesn't obey. <laughs> okay. Now, again, I don't think this will happen very often, but um, that would be a respectful way. And then probably I'd go, yeah, you're right, that's fair enough. Because I'd feel heard, I'd feel listened to, I'd feel respected and not undermined. Okay, um, That's what's really important for men. Okay, Now the reason for a wife, Christian wife, to submit or respect to her, hus her husband is, verse 23, because Christ, just as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. Now we have to understand, well, what does that headship mean? Okay, it means that Christ has authority over the church and the husband has authority over the wife. But again, what does that mean? Authority to do what? Authority to boss her around? No. The hint is given in verse 23, and it's probably the word that you didn't realise, you glossed over. And that is because the church is described as Christ's body. That word, body, is repeated in verses 28 to 31 in the bit to husbands. And there the point is made that no one um, doesn't care for their own body. Everyone cares for their body. And suddenly this unlocks the meaning of authority or headship. Christ is the head of the church in that he has authority to care for it. The husband is the head of the wife in that he has authority to care for her. Not to boss her around, but to care for her. The ESV translation has the word to cherish. I love that word. That's what we promised in our wedding vows, wasn't it? To love and to cherish. Often I find that in um, marriage counselling situations, couples have forgotten that vow and they've swapped it for something else to love and to put up with. But that's not what they promised each other. They promised to cherish. Now, when you cherish something, what do you do? You, well, you, you regard it as precious, you esteem it, you, you think of its great value, you think that you are lucky to have it, right? Husbands are to do this for their wives, cherish them, care for them. That's the husband's role. The right wife's role is to respect him in that task, to make it easy for him to exercise that role. So that even if and when she disagrees with him, she's careful not to roll the eyes, not to ridicule not to slander, not to argue him into the corner, but to be appreciative of him. Now, in my experience of pastoral counselling, what we have here 
in this chapter is pastoral gold. What do husbands most need from their wives? Respect. What do wives most need from their husbands? To be loved. All right, if you could bottle that and sell it, you'd, you'd become a millionaire. So for wives, remember, the way to bring out the best in your husband is to respect him. He's going to struggle with anger if you don't. He'll struggle with self-doubt and self-worth issues if, you, if he feels undermined and disrespected at home. He will thrive when he feels respected. And also husbands, what your wife most needs is to be loved. So here's the other word for husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, not for what you can get out of it, but for her chief good. Okay. Now notice, husbands, that headship is defined not in terms of you telling her what to do, but of you loving her and of you caring for her. Our, we are, our model in this is Christ and what he did for the church. He laid down his life for the church. Sacrificially, we are to do the same for our wives. Now, obviously, um, some of what Christ did for the church, we can't replicate for our wives. Um, we can't give our lives as a sin offering for our wives, and nor do we need to, because... Uh, Christ's death was sufficient, and even if we had tried, we wouldn't, it wouldn't work because we ourselves are sinful. Our sacrifice wouldn't work, but we don't need to. However, um, what we are meant to do is to imitate his sacrificial love. We encourage her. We point her to the Lord. Christ gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her. Now, here's a phrase I wouldn't have expected by washing her with water through the word. I would have expected it would have said Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her, cleansing her by washing her with his blood. It doesn't say that. By washing her with water through his word. Paul is picking up on a Jewish betrothal and wedding custom. The man becomes betrothed to the woman um, by speaking words of commitment at the betrothal ceremony. Just before they are married, she takes a bath. She's taken baths before, of course, but she takes us a real bath, but symbolic of her saying, I'm washing myself clean for you. Paul is plugging into that and saying, Christ, when he died on the cross, washed her with water, made her clean for him. And he speaks that word, that word of commitment, that greatest word of commitment, which is the word of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay. He did this. <clears throat> the goal is to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We can't repeat all that Christ did, but that's to be our goal, you see. So that when Christ comes, our wives, we can present to the Lord Jesus, our wife, who's made it in good shape, not kind of staggering over the line, but in good shape, trusting in God, hopeful, with a solid faith, because of how we have cared for her. And the clue is through the Word, through the Word. We have the Bible. Now, if you're a Christian husband sitting listening to this, maybe you're feeling guilty. You're thinking, oh, I haven't read the Bible with my wife as much as I should. 
Can I say there are things to do? You can send her an encouraging text, a verse that you've been reading through the day that you think she might be encouraged by. You can pray for her. You can let her know that you are praying for her. You can pray with her. Even if you're not a great Bible scholar or uh, you, know, you can't explain the Bible uh, very well, you can read it with her and then pray. These are massively encouraging things to do for our wives, to present her holy and blameless. But of course, our sacrificial love for her and our grace shown to her is going to come out in thousands of ways because we cherish her, right? We value our wives. That's what we're to do, to give ourselves up for her, for her good. Okay. Now, what have we found? We found that Christian marriage is wonderful and great. But it's not the greatest. There's a greater reality. So, let me draw application. First for singles, then for marriage, then for all of us. First for singles. Um, you can be single and not married and still complete as a person. Uh, why do I say that? You do not need a wife or husband to complete you. Um, this is a great relief. <laughs> um, Jesus Christ was the most complete human being who'd ever lived, but he wasn't married, was he? Well, not to one person, but he's married to the church, okay, to all of us. And that's the relationship that you're in too. Your husband or wife, a husband or wife won't complete you. Jesus Christ completes you. That is the great reality and you're involved in it. So for marrieds, of course, we need not to idolise our marriage and think that this is it. This is the ultimate reality. No, the ultimate reality is not your marriage to your husband or wife. And so it would be wrong to make, it, make them think that they can do for you what only the Lord can. The greatest reality is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't idolise your marriage. Don't demand um, that your husband and wife do what only Christ can do for you. Um, however, your marriage is a wonderful thing. And for your sakes, for the sake of the, the, your husband or your wife, you have responsibility within it. And you have responsibility to the rest of the church in how you treat them because you're reminding us of the greater reality, which is Christ and the church. So wives, um, submit to your husbands, respect them, and husbands, love your wives. That is a ministry to everyone. Finally, for men and women, um, this passage tells us that the way we're to relate to everyone, all Christians, is in the context of grace and kindness and love. And lastly, I want to say for everyone, we really do need to now listen to the passage from our wives. I know I said husbands, it's not a word for you, but now it is in the sense that you are part of the bride of Christ. We are to take our cue from what our wives do. Knowing that we are the bride of Christ, we are to submit to him, uh, respect him, listen to him, uh, love him for who he is, uh, esteem him, uh, don't fight him, don't rail against him, but let his grace, uh, which we receive, transform us. That's what we're to do. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage which speaks both to uh, the married people amongst us, and also the singles, and all of us. Our loving and gracious God, help wives here to respect their husbands and help husbands here to love their wives sacrificially. 
And we pray, help us to respect and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the way in which we relate to one another, may your grace transform us and flow out into how we treat others. May we have such a high regard for you because we have experienced in our lives your generosity, your grace, your kindness to us through Jesus, that it truly does transform our church. And we pray it in Jesus' name.